0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, King Jesus, Studying the Life and Work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark fourteen twenty two through 26 And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Well, uh, thank you guys for being here today. Uh, for those of you that uh, didn't know that Justin was out of town, this is probably quite a surprise to you uh, that someone else is standing here. Um, but uh, as Sam said, uh, I'm really excited to be before you today. I'm also really nervous to be before you today. Uh, I've actually never seen the faces in the balcony before, so this is a first. Um, actually, there's a lot of firsts today. I, I've never preached at Sacred City, obviously. I have never uh, preached with a... Um, podium that's this heavy um, and cannot be moved. Uh, I've also never preached from a rabbit's den. Um, in a couple days, maybe a couple weeks here, you'll see that this is kind of being fleshed out into the Velveteen Rabbit, and this is the rabbit's den, and uh, so they'll be doing some things there. So I can, I'm can, i probably amongst the few men who can say they've preached uh, in a rabbit's den. So um, there's that. So let me give you a little bit more background for, for about me, because this can be awkward. We don't, we don't know each other. I know some of you from, uh, working out. I know some of you from the gym. I know some of you from missional community. I know some of you from, uh, Dunn brothers and and others of you, um, just from, from passing and being at picnics and things like that. But, um, I am married, uh, to my wife, Alicia. Uh, we've been married for 12 years coming up here in March. Uh, we have two boys. I have an 11 year old and an eight year old. So a sixth grader and a third grader. Uh, And I know all of you just kind of said, man, he doesn't look nearly old enough to have children that old and <laughs> the lighting is really good, and um, we're getting what we paid for. Um, my wife and I have lived in the quad cities now for coming up on four years. Uh, we moved here from Dallas, Texas uh, because we hated warm weather and wanted now we uh, That's not why. But we we moved and took a youth ministry position just across the river and and loved working with students and have worked with students for about the last 10 years uh, of our lives. And now uh, we find ourselves in a position where we believe God's calling us to plant a church. And uh, so Sacred City is training us to plant a church, uh, hopefully in this area and uh, to be here and put roots here and build a life here and and be around the Quad Cities. We My wife and I both grew up in towns like the Quad Cities, and um, so when we came uh, here from Dallas, this was kind of a getting back to our roots. And uh, no, we didn't have John Deere tractors everywhere or any of those things, but uh, we we love those things. We were those people who, when we first moved back to the Quad Cities, we went to the uh, John Deere Commons and put our kids in the tractor tires, and you know took pictures of them and sent that to our family. We're those people. So, all right. So that's that's a little bit about me. That's a little snapshot. So not quite like 140 characters. Like Twitter requires, but this isn't Twitter, so I took liberties and uh, now you know a little bit more about me, and uh, I'm sure you'll find out a little bit more about me as we go along today so with that let's uh, let's move forward into our text today we've we've heard it, and uh, we've we've Some of us were probably a little bit familiar with it. Uh, If you've grown up around church or been in church, this passage of scripture today uh, is a passage that that we're familiar with, maybe somewhat routine for us at this point. Uh, Maybe we get it and we know it and and we're good. We're solid. We're ready to go on it. But there's another side uh, for those of you that may be in the room today that Uh, are unfamiliar with church. Maybe you haven't been around all that long, and this passage of Scripture has the uh, tendency or the ability or the leaning to uh, be kind of awkward, uh, to be a little bit weird. We see Jesus telling his disciples to eat his body and drink his blood. And uh, like usually if I walk into a place like that or a situation like that, like I don't stick around all that long. And uh, it's just not for me. But if that's for you, great. I'm glad you're here. Uh, we welcome all. As Sam said earlier, the doors are open. Okay. So, so today's text concerns what is known as the Lord's Supper, or some of you may call it communion. Uh, others of you may call it the Eucharist, okay? And so, so three names uh, for the same thing. It's kind of like your cousin from the South, right? Like three names that he goes by, but same dude, okay? So, so why three names? Okay, so it's titled the Lord's Supper because it commemorates the Passover meal that Jesus ate with the disciples, okay? It's called the Eucharist because Eucharist means Thanksgiving and, in it and our, our taking of it. We thank God for Christ's work. On our behalf. And then we come to the term that most of us use communion because we commune with God and other believers through it. Okay. So three names, one event. So I'll use them interchangeably as we go. Um, and and there, but they all are meaning the same thing. Okay. So around the time of the reformation, so think early 1500s to mid 1600s, the issue of the Lord's supper was actually a highly contentious issue. Like we're talking about, uh, uh, lives lost, bloodshed. Uh, Christian brothers that have been uh, walking uh, through life together are now divided over the issue of communion. Uh, Think big names like Calvin, Luther, Zwingli. Uh, These are the type of dudes that we're referring to that are kind of debating and and giving us a solid foundation about what the Lord's Supper is. And, um, and, And it brought great division. And for us today, though, we live on this side of history where the Lord's Supper isn't a very highly contentious issue. You don't find many people sitting over coffee arguing about transubstantiation or um, any other big terms like that that I just lost half of you. I'm sorry. But we do hear today people argue over things like baptism. People argue over things like uh, spiritual gifts, Uh, maybe even the color of the carpet in the church lobby. But hardly anybody argues about the Eucharist anymore. You don't see many people arguing about the Lord's Supper. So communion for us uh, is one of two ordinances or commands that are given to the church. Okay, So without uh, communion, without baptism taking place in our church, you and I, as we gather together, we would be nothing more than, than a country club or a social gathering without these two ordinances. So you'll notice here at Sacred City that we participate in both of those ordinances regularly. We take communion on a weekly basis. We do baptism uh, on a, a somewhat quarterly basis uh, and when the need arises for that. So we are participating in, in these two ordinances, these Uh, commands that are given to us. And um, as we get into this this morning, I just want you to know that this is a bigger topic than I'm qualified to give you all the information on. There have been uh, books written that are uh, as thick as this, this platform here. Uh, there have been guys with with greater names and, and all kinds of degrees behind or in front of their name that have spoken on this and written things about it. So I, I will just want to clear that up before we get started that, that I can't possibly give us all the information that's available to us this morning on the Lord's Supper. Uh, in fact... Uh, before I, I preached, Justin uh, gave me just a small little book called Calvin's Institutes. And um, it's, uh, it's only, what, probably about a thousand-page document. And uh, in it, it contains other books. And, and one of those is... Uh, Uh, book four, chapter 17 is all about the Lord's Supper. And Justin said, Hey, I want you to read this before uh, you you speak to our people. I said, okay. So I grabbed it and um, it was just a small, like 35 page article on uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, And as I began to read it, I realized very quickly that that I understood like one out of every three words that was being said. And um, I just got through and, and I was like, what was just said? Like I found myself just highlighting things for the sake of highlighting things. You know, like you have your highlighter out and it's just it's just drying up if I don't use it. So, um, it, it was just. So I want you to know that this issue is a challenge for me too. This has been a learning process for me as well. and uh, So I won't attempt to give us every single bit of information about the Lord's Supper that I can this morning. But I do hope that um, as we leave today and as we're here today, that we will see the Lord's Supper as maybe something more than what we saw uh, as when we walked in. More than maybe just a memory. Or maybe more than just something we observe on a weekly basis. And uh, as I'm beginning to learn that this is a means of grace from God to us, and we'll talk about that a little bit as we go on. So um, uh, full disclosure here, uh, Sam was talking about Preaching Lab, and I had the opportunity to preach this sermon uh, to a group of men last weekend, and it took me uh, all of 20 minutes. So for those of you, if you have lunch plans, you may want to text someone real quick and let them know you'll be, well, I don't know if you'll be a little earlier or not, but I just wanted you to know that um, I'm from the East Coast, so I have a tendency when I get nervous to speak fast. Um, so I'm going to attempt to slow myself down. If I start getting to go too fast, just raise a hand up or um, pinch your baby or just something <laughs> along those lines, and I will do my best to, to slow down and, um, and do that for us, okay? So, so let's dive in a little bit, okay? We've already been diving in a little bit, but let's go deeper, okay? So John Calvin said concerning the Lord's Supper, he said, the mind is more powerful in thought than the tongue in expression. The mind is more powerful in thought than the tongue and expression. When we think of the Lord's Supper, it, it, for most of us, it probably gets some type of thought process going for us. And we start thinking about the beauty of it. We start thinking about maybe the, the weirdness of it or the awkwardness of it. or we, It usually conjures up some type of thought in our mind. And, but if somebody was to ask you about the Lord's Supper, we'd probably have a hard time explaining it. Like, how do you get past the fact that Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood and you should participate in this? Like, if you're explaining that to a friend, it, it get, could get kind of weird. So as I, as I say that, the truth is that um, as we talk about the Lord's Supper, it can be confusing. It can be uh, something that we get very heady about, and we can't really explain all that all that well. So uh, my intent this morning is to help us to get this into a way that we can uh, process it and to see how the Lord's Supper today has implications for us still today. This wasn't just something uh, done here once, but something that, that we're still looking forward to. And, because, and I say that because... If we miss the meaning of the Lord's Supper, it's very possible that we miss God. It's very possible that we miss community. Uh, And it's very possible that we, we just miss the gift that's been given to us. And I don't think that's the desire of any of our hearts as we're here. Okay. So let's get a full scope of, of the Lord's Supper. And in order to do that, you and I have to go way back in history. Okay? So uh, we're going to go back about 1,500 years uh, before the birth of Jesus even to the, uh, the Passover. Okay? So we get this term Passover, and we have to figure out what in the world that means. So just like when you and I are in missional communities and somebody's sharing a story, we have to go back to the beginning of that person's life, the beginning of that person's story, to figure out how they got to the place they are now. So let's go back a little bit, and let's see what we can... Uh, Learn about this. We learned last week that Jesus is eating the Passover meal with the disciples. Okay, for for ancient Jews and Jews still today, Passover is an annual meal that commemorates the uh, Exodus or leaving of the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. Okay? So an annual meal that commemorates God's bringing the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. So under the rule of Egypt's Pharaoh, the Israelites, they're living in bondage. They're marginalized. They're impoverished. They're, they're not living a joyful life. They are not uh, living a life that shows them off as God's chosen people. Uh, and they are just being held back. And we see more than 1,500 years before the birth of Jesus, God sent plagues to Egypt in order to free his people. We're talking about plagues like water turning to blood. Frogs covering the land, gnats, flies, dead livestock, uh, boils, hail, locusts, and darkness. And we find out that none of those worked. The, the Bible actually tells us that Pharaoh's heart was hardened in the midst of that. This is not a dude that's, that's like most of us. Like if you turn on my water faucet in the morning and blood comes out, you can have what you want. Okay, like if you cover my land in frogs or locusts or or gnats, like take what you want and leave, right? Boils, like that just doesn't sound attractive to me. Like you, I don't, just take what you want and go. But we see that Pharaoh hardens his heart. Pharaoh says, no, actually kind of digs his feet in a little deeper. So one night though, God sends a final plague. God's going to deliver a divine justice, or we might use such a word as wrath. And this wrath will fall on everyone, including the Israelites, that's the Jews. So it couldn't simply pass over them just because they were Jewish. So the final plague is this, in every home in Egypt, there would be death brought to the firstborn of every household. Exodus twelve twenty nine says this, it says, From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. So we see that this this isn't limited to rich. This isn't limited to poor. It's not even limited to human life. We see that even livestock are going to be affected uh, by this event, by this uh, divine justice taking place. But there's one way to escape. God spells out and gives specific instructions to Moses and Aaron on a way to escape the wrath, on a way to escape the judgment against your household. So what would have to happen is that the, the people, the Israelites, they would take a lamb and they would slay it, they would kill it, and they would take that blood of that lamb and they would sm- smear it across the doorpost. So they have their lamb, they kill it, the blood is spilled, they would take like a hyssop branch, dip it in there and go to the doorpost of the house and smear it across the doorpost. Some, most of us are kind of familiar with that, we've heard that before, but that's what that event looks like. And in and, and every home that night, there would either be uh, a dead child or a dead human being, or a dead animal, okay? Or, excuse me, yeah, or a dead lamb. So a dead child or a dead lamb. One of those two things was gonna take place in every house that night. So the option is to take shelter under the blood of the substitute or you receive the divine justice of God against your household. If you took shelter underneath the blood of the lamb that's slain, your home is passed over, thus giving us the term Passover that, that we've become pretty familiar with. You were saved solely on the basis of your faith in the blood that was shed. The next morning after this event takes place, Pharaoh, along with the rest of the Egyptians, they wake up horrified. In fact, in Exodus 12, 33, it says, they were urgent with the people to send them out of the land. So now, after all these plagues, this is the one that does the trick. This is the one that does the job. And we see that the people are so terrified and horrified that they say, get them out of here. Get them out of our land. And we see that the people, they grabbed their dough before it had time to uh, be leavened and they fled the land. And now every year since, the Jews have celebrated with a meal to commemorate their exodus or their departure from Egypt. So this is a celebration meal for the Jews of when they were rescued from their slavery in Egypt. And as Justin began to talk about last week, the preparations for the meal were very particular. So from 6 p.m. to about midnight, there would be four cups of wine that would be shared together as a family. And during the, every time one of these cups of wine is presented, there would be a different part of the story told. So there'd be uh, a, a, a person, most likely the father of the house, that would uh, present the cups as sort of a toast to remind the people of, of God's promises to them, to remind the people of what it was that God was going to do and said that he was going to do and then did. So we're talking about promises like rescue from Egypt, promises like freedom from slavery, uh, promise for redemption and a renewed relationship with God. So these aren't small promises. These aren't things that they're like nonchalant about. This is a big deal for the Israelites to have all these things. They've been wanting these things. Rescue from Egypt, freedom from slavery, redemption, and a renewed relationship with God. And uh, they celebrate this on a yearly basis now. Last week when we came in and looked at our passage of Scripture, what took place took place during the second cup of the meal. And Jesus says to his disciples there that one of them will betray him. And all the disciples begin to look around at each other. Is it I? Is it me? And they're, they're just kind of looking around the room. And, and actually something interesting took place there that, that Justin didn't really touch on, but Jesus presents a cup to them and says, it's one of you who dips his bread in this cup. And we see that and we're like, okay, so the disciples are looking for clarity. Like, who is it? And Jesus actually broadens the playing field because they've all dipped their bread uh, in, in the cup. So we don't get the clarity we're looking for. And then when we approach our passage this week, it's almost as if, that moment has passed, and now this moment is upon us because it says, again, as they were eating. So they are, have been told that one of them will betray Christ, and now somehow, as only the disciples can, they're back to eating. Like, well, there's, there's food here. If we're going to betray you, we better get our strength up, right? Like, we don't, we don't understand why we don't get it, but that's, that's where we find ourselves. So we find ourselves at the third cup of the meal. Okay, the third cup of the meal is what takes place in verses 22 through 26. And tradition tells us that during the presentation of the third cup, something like this would have been said. It would have said, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the wilderness. Okay, this is the bread of our affliction which the fathers ate in the wilderness. Our fathers ate in the wilderness. So that's what should have been said. But as we look at this passage of scripture, we know that that's not at all what was said. We see Jesus here departing from a 1,500-year-old script, and he says, this is my body. Like, I don't know about you, but like at Thanksgiving or a Christmas meal, like if, if grandpa starts saying that or, or our cousin starts saying, like, this is a big moment. Like, there's a script. There's a routine. There's something that's supposed to be said here that we see is not said. Jesus says, this is my body. What does that even mean? Like, no, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's bread. Like that's like this is this is awkward, but we see that what Jesus is saying is hugely significant. Jesus is now saying, This is the bread of my affliction. This is the bread of my suffering. And we know on this side of history that Jesus is going to lead another Exodus. This time it won't be an exodus from Egypt. This time it will be an exodus from the penalty of sin. It will be a departure from sin. And this time it's his broken body that will bring that deliverance. It's also interesting for us to note that this isn't the first time that Jesus has referred to himself as bread or been called bread. In fact, even the very city that Jesus is from, the city of Bethlehem, means city of bread. So the very town that Jesus is from is called the city of bread. We also see over in John uh, chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus himself says, I am the bread of life. I say that for us this morning because a lot of traditions, many traditions, struggle with what Jesus is really referring to here. Like, it, like is Jesus speaking literally, like this is the body of Christ, or is Jesus speaking metaphorically? And we're not going to cover that yet, but we're going to get to that a little bit more as we go on. Okay, Jesus then takes the cup, and offers it to them, and they all drank from it, saying, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, Now it will be my blood that saves. No longer will a lamb suffice. So he's just told him it's his broken body that's going to bring deliverance. Now it's his blood that's going to save, and this lamb isn't going to do anymore. So let's take a moment here. This is, again, I've said this before, and I want to kind of beat this into us a little bit. This is a 1,500-year-old script that's supposed to be taking place this night. 1,500 years of tradition, 1,500 years of, uh, of, of history, 1,500 years of celebration, and now all of a sudden, something's different in the midst of it. So the 1,500 years of tradition was four cups shared from 6 p.m. to midnight. After the cups are shared, the people would actually stay inside. They wouldn't leave the house. They would, they would uh, commemorate the Passover, right? So if they left the house during the original Passover, they would die. So they had to stay inside all night. So now they're inside all night, okay? The meal has also not changed. Justin described last week how uh, great it sounded, right? So the food is unleavened bread. It's bitter herbs, greens, stewed fruit, and lamb, Like, lamb is the only attractive part about this, right? Like, uh, honey, could you make the stewed fruit tonight? Like, no. Like, some of you didn't. Maybe, okay, it's for you. All right, so, but each one of these things, each part of this meal is significant. Each part of this meal means something. And each part of it is distinct. And now, to the amazement of the disciples, Jesus loses the script. Jesus changes the script. In our culture, we might say that Jesus flips the script. He's already departed a little bit during the second cup by saying, one of you will betray me, and they all kind of go into, like, self-denial mode, right? Like, it's not me, it's not me, and, you know, and now he's doing it again. But this time, he says, the bread is now my body, and the wine is now my shed blood. Like, don't pass over. Like, this is, this is huge. Like, this is so much bigger than, like, cousins, Cousin Eddie's dog, like, hacking up a bone under the table at Christmas dinner, right? Like, this is so much bigger like more of an interruption than that. Like we see that, and that's almost a laughable moment. This is not a laughable moment. This is a moment where it's like, what in the world are you doing? Like this is tradition. You know how strong tradition is at your house, right? And when somebody breaks tradition, like that's sacred ground, right? Like you better tread lightly, okay? Like at our house, if you don't take your shoes off when you walk in, like that's a tradition. And we even have a sign on the door, like do not tread in this place with your shoes on, right? Like, so we all have these things. And, but as, as you and I have sat under, now a sacred city has been walking through the book of Mark since uh, the beginning of 2015. We've almost come to expect this from Jesus. We're now 14 chapters into Mark. We've seen Jesus over and over and over do things that, that are just different. So we've almost come to expect this. We see that Jesus here isn't held back by tradition. Jesus isn't held back by by what people believe should take place. Jesus steps in and he rewrites the script of Passover, just like he's rewritten the script of the disciples' lives already. Think about this these disciples are not an A team of guys. The disciples were, were men that had already chosen a career field. They were already working either for their father or they, they had their own business. And they had already studied the things that they were going to do for the rest of their life in school. And Jesus comes to them and, and, and picks them to be his followers. We know something significant about this because these guys, if they had what it, what it took to like make the grade, they would have already been chosen by a rabbi to follow. Somebody would have already selected them as the brightest and the best. And, and Jesus comes into the midst of that to this B team of guys, and he changes the script of their life. Some of them were out fishing. Some of them are sitting at a tax collector's table, and Jesus comes and rewrites the script of their life. We also see Jesus as, as every person he's healed over the last three years. He's rewriting the script of their life, too. Blind people can now see. Deaf people can now hear. People that were, that were lame and had disfigurements are now made whole. People with skin issues are now made right. And we see Jesus rewriting the script of these people's lives. Some of them, he says, go and be quiet about this. Others, he says, you have a new mission for your life. Go and tell the city where you came from. We see Jesus rewriting scripts. And I believe that as we sit here today, that he desires to do the same thing in our life. That Jesus desires to rewrite the script of our life let's sit in that for a minute. Think about the script of your life. All of us have a script. All of us have uh, something that's got us to the place that we are today. All of us follow, a, a church term would be a liturgy. All of us follow some type of of ordinance to our day. Maybe it's an ordinance to your life. You, you plan it out when you were little. Like, I'll have this number of kids. I'll have this number of dogs. I'll have zero cats. I will, uh, like, it's just that, right? Like, we've all planned that out. And anything against that is just, like, against the plan, right? So, we, we try to plan these things. That's, that's our script. And most of us, obviously it's not 1500 years old, but it's a script that's, that's been built into us. It's a script that we follow. So let me walk you through like a typical script, right? So you wake up in the morning, coffee. I'll give you a second. Yeah. Okay. Wake up, coffee, coffee, Feed the people you're responsible for, right? Whether it's yourself, whether it's your family, whether it's a pet, feed the people you're responsible for or things you're responsible for. Go to work. Facebook stalk everyone, okay? Coffee. Okay? Get back in the car. Feed the people you're responsible for. Turn on Netflix. Repeat. For most of us, that's a pretty accurate description of our script. Our daily script looks something like that. Wake up, coffee, feed the people you're responsible for, get to work, Facebook, Instagram, other social media, coffee, get back in the car, feed the people you're responsible for, turn on the TV, okay? And, and we do this. It's a script. It's a script. It's, it's what we do. It's our tradition. You you kind of know what to expect on a daily basis. And And if you're like me, any disturbance to that script is like, I I already said it, right? It's like stepping on like sacred ground, especially the coffee and Netflix part, right? Like do not interrupt that part, okay? The feeding of people, okay, you can interrupt that a little bit, okay? The Facebook stuff, like please interrupt that, right? Like so there are parts of the script that we're okay and we're flexible on, but most of us when something interrupts our script, like it's not welcomed. It's not something that we are excited about. Like when you wake up in the morning, you're not like, I wonder how terrible this day could go. Like, I wonder how many people can walk in and just ruin this day. Or, like, how many people can, can go against my plan? And inevitably, it happens, though, right? You get in the midst of your day, and a phone call comes. You're on your way to work, and, and, the, and the, the gas buzzer dings, right? You're, you're, you see, like, the low tire light come on. Like, things just come into the midst of this script, and it's unwelcome for us. But hopefully we can see by now as we've walked through 14 uh, chapters of the life of Christ that we can see that Jesus, Jesus doesn't seem to be overly concerned with our script. In fact, Jesus doesn't seem to be overly uh, concerned with any script except that of the Father. I was thinking about this as I was kind of struggling with this, like the interruptions we experience on a daily basis may very well be the things that God's using to rewrite our script may very well be the things that God's using to say like, hey, your script's not awful, like your script's not bad, but it's just not mine. And these things come in in the midst of it, and these things bug us, these things interrupt us, and like the people that enter our path, the situations we have no control over, the sin that we just can't seem to conquer. Like we just cannot get over it. All God's way of reminding us of our dependence on his script rather than our script. Now, I know, ours is really well written. It's really well thought out. It's really well planned. Like, we spent a lot of time on it. But if it's not God's script, it may be time for a change of script. It may be time to welcome Jesus coming in to to flip that script of your life. Let's continue on a little bit. Jesus says in verse 25, he says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So in the time that, that Christ is living here, somebody might say something like, I'm not going to eat or drink again until I, X, like fill in the blank, right? Until I fulfill my promise, until I fulfill this commitment, until I do what I said I was going to do, until I pay back my debt, I'm not going to eat or drink again until I do what? So we would say that as the person is making an oath. Kind of similar to when you and I, like at the beginning of the year, and we're like, I'm going to lose this holiday weight if it kills me. I heard some, some Snickers, Okay. Stop. Okay? Unlike our oath, though, that we made at the beginning of the year, I saw a meme just the other day that was like, January is just a practice round, right? Like, that's your your trial run at fulfilling your New Year's resolution, right? So, sometimes when we make a commitment and we make an oath, we're just, it's just hard, we're just not able to finish it out. We're just not able to see the results we want to see. Like, like Vinny down here like squats like hundreds of thousands of pounds, and like, I watch his videos, and I'm like, I want that. So I go to the gym one day, and I expect that result, right? I'm like, just put it on. Just put it on my back. And then I end up like some crazy internet sensation video, right? Like, <laughs> Unlike our oath, though, this oath that, that Jesus is making or the oath that people would have made in his day was a serious oath. And we see that it's an oath that's marked by blood, That's a pretty significant oath, like marked by blood should mean something to us. And this oath meant that you're making a covenant, like a solemn agreement between you and another party. This is essentially you signing the dotted line or this person signing the dotted line. This covenant was established and sealed with the killing of an animal. So the person would would bring their goat or lamb or whatever it was to this uh, agreement meeting or ceremony or whatever you want to picture it as, and they'd come in and they would take this animal and they would literally cut the animal in half. It's laid out there. And as they made their promise or as they made their oath, they would walk between the two parts of the body that was just killed. Like, I see it all over your face. Like, why don't we do this today? Right? Like, as we see this, like, this is like kind of barbaric. At the very least, it's gross. Like, can you imagine doing this today? Like, you and I, we go down to the car dealership, and we bring our goat in tow with us, right? And we pick out the new truck we want, and we, we're standing before, like, the car dealer guy, and we just take our oath, and we cut it in half, and I promise to pay my car loan, right? Like, this would be so great. We should, re, we should, re, we should bring this back, right? Like, I guess, like, for me, like, I'm fine with a handshake, but I guess nothing says I promise, like, killing an animal, right? Like, let's just do that. And, but this was a <laughs> This was a way for the people to say, if I don't fulfill my promise, check check this out. If I don't fulfill my promise, may my blood be spilled. May it be me that's cut in half. That should be weighty for us. That Jesus himself would say, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine again until I do it with you in the new kingdom. Jesus is making a, a promise to us. Jesus saying he wasn't going to drink again until the, of the fruit of the wine until he drinks it in the new kingdom of God is Jesus making a covenant. You might even say a new covenant between God and us. It's a covenant based on his blood. Again, a change of script. The script for all these years has been the shed blood of a lamb. Now Jesus comes in and he's changing the script again. Again. Jesus is promising that he is unconditionally committed to his people. Not just the disciples, this is us. Jesus is unconditionally committed to us. Jesus is inviting believers to a feast in the new kingdom in which he will dine with us and we will dine with him. We don't often think about that when we think about communion, that Jesus is making a covenant with us that he will one day return and we will get to do this with him. This isn't just simply an act of remembrance. This is an act in which, yeah, we do remember, but we are also looking forward to doing it again with him bodily as his people. Jesus is saying here, this is so much more than just a past remembrance of me. In fact, when he's telling the disciples here, this event hasn't even taken place yet. So it it, it can't be just a memory yet. It can't be just a remembrance because at this point it hasn't even taken place. We see through the very words of Christ here that this has future implications. This is a promise to you and I. Are we remembering what Christ has done for us? Absolutely we are. But are we also looking forward to his return again one day? Most definitely. So yes, we are remembering, but we are also looking forward to a return. What we see going on here is actually a much bigger deal uh, than what we may think it is. Essentially what's taking place here is that Jesus is putting an end to the Old Testament And now bringing in the New Testament. And I don't know if I'd ever looked at it that way before. That this is is an end to the Old Testament. This is an end to the old way of doing things. Again, a change in the script. Jesus, with the simple act of taking a piece of bread and a glass of wine and saying, this is my body, this is my blood, is saying something huge to us. He's saying that all the earlier deliverances... All the other sacrifices, all the millions of lambs at this point that have been slain at the Passover, they were all pointing to him. Every one of them. Every broken body of a lamb, every bit of blood that was shed was always pointing to Christ. It's also important to notice this. The first Passover was observed the night before God would redeem the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. This Passover meal was eaten the night before God would redeem the world from sin and death through the blood of his son. The first, the first Passover, the night before God redeemed the Israelites from slavery through the blood of lambs. This Passover, the night before God would redeem the world from sin and death through the blood of Jesus. No more work, no more striving, no more dead animals, no more uh, stewed fruits, no more bitter herbs, no more greens, no more work. Now faith in the shed blood of Christ. Grace through faith in the shed blood of Christ. So let me get a little personal with you this morning, and as if I haven't already, but um, if you would have asked me just even a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago, before I was going to preach this passage of scripture, and you just said, hey, hey Jeff, why do we do Communion. Why do we do communion? I probably would have said something along the lines of, well, we do it in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. His, the bread represents his body that was broken for us. The wine or the, or the grape juice, whatever your tradition does, that represents Jesus' blood that was poured out for us. And, and that probably would have been my answer to you. And, and, and that's not a terrible answer, but it's only part of the answer. And for me, as, as I've begun studying this and looking at this, like, uh, I' just just between you and I and all the millions that will listen on podcasts to this, like this has um, man, this has just slowed me down like, it 's just made me think about what 's really going on here and, and how many times have I uh, taken communion how many times like time after time, week after week, year after year, perhaps without fully knowing the importance without fully knowing the significance of the Lord's Supper. And, and as I say that to you, like, that's a little bit embarrassing for me to admit to you as, as someone who's called herself a pastor or a minister. And, uh, but at the same time, it's, it's humbling, not a kind of humbling that's like got me like moaning around the house, but like a a humbling that's causing me to see Christ in it with new eyes to hear him with fresh ears. And, um, it's been a time of, of really just, I guess this is probably an overused word for our culture, but like a time of wonder. Like, what's really going on here? This seems much more significant than I learned. This seems much more significant than, than what I've made it out to be. And um, so let me keep walking you through that a little bit. So the Lord's Supper on one hand for us is, yes, deeply personal. This is a deeply personal thing, but at the same time, it's also a communal act of worship, meaning community, meaning a shared act of worship, meaning that it's, just, it's not just me that's participating in this Lord's Supper, and that's been something different, and I'm going to talk about that in just a second. But in this act of worship, you and I, we're active, actively renewing our covenant with God and our brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, as believers, uh, we're partaking of the life of Christ and the work he did for us. So, yes, this is deeply personal for us. It's a time, listen, that we stop speaking. It's a time that we slow down. It's a time we reflect. A time that we commune with God. A time that you and I get back to our roots with the Father. Again, we do this individually, and we do it as a community. And I would say for most of us, we get the individual side of the Lord's Supper, like, we're, we're good at slowing down. We're good at being solemn in this. We're good at uh, humbling ourselves. We're good at uh, maybe even confessing sin and repeating, uh, or excuse me, um, and, and returning ourselves over to the gospel. Like, we've become kind of good at, at, at the personal side of things. And some of the things that should happen, the Lord's Supper should cause us to pause, should cause us to reflect on our spiritual condition, should cause us to repent, and then renew our faith in the gospel. Renew our faith in the in the work of Christ. And I heard it said this way. There's kind of four points to, to communion. It says the celebration of communion should one, humble us before God. We confess our sin and we restate our need for Christ. Two, it reminds us that we're forgiven. That Christ is the true and better Passover lamb. Three, it expresses our oneness with Christ. Through the taking of the Lord's Supper, we are united. We are unified with him and in our faith. And then four, it encourages us to recommit ourselves to the gospel. It encourages us to stop working so hard, to stop striving so hard, and recommit ourselves again to the, to the work that's been done on our behalf on the cross. I was talking to the staff this week, and was just talking about the importance of, of communion. And, and, and Joel had this to say. He said, you could have missed all the worship through song. You could have missed all the liturgy. You could have checked out during the entire sermon, but when it comes to the Lord's Supper, this should be a time of awakening for us. Could have missed every song, could have missed every bit of liturgy, could have missed Joel's soliloquy on uh, the, uh, the Apostles' Creed, right? We could have missed all that. We could have missed the sermon, but when it comes to the Lord's Supper, we should be awakened. And here's the thing that, that I wanna draw out on us in this. If the Lord's Supper does not cause us to do those things, it may be a time for us to pause and ask why. It may very well be that you and I are taking the Lord's Supper wrong. We may be taking it in an unworthy manner. We may, may be making it out to be something it's not. So we need, to, we need to pause, and we need to reflect, and we need to ask why. But it may very well be that you and I are following the wrong script. Maybe we learned a script through church tradition or, or through our church growing up, and maybe that script wasn't necessarily bad, but maybe it's not the right script. And, I'm not saying that, that I have the right script, but I will say that if the Lord's Supper doesn't cause you to do those things, you may be following a wrong script. We may be doing this for the wrong reason. You see, the Lord's Supper shouldn't be done mindlessly. It shouldn't be done out of habit. It shouldn't be done out of routine. It should be a time of reflection, a time of solemnness with the Lord. It, it probably for us, shouldn't be a time of joking. It probably shouldn't be a time that we, we catch up with our friends that we haven't seen in a while should be a time between us and the Lord. We see actually from the text that when Jesus is saying this to the disciples that the disciples say nothing. Now think about the importance of that. 14 chapters into Mark, has there ever been a time when Jesus does something and the disciples say nothing? Like this is this is a historic event right in the life, in the life of the disciples. Like we see just a couple of weeks back that, that a woman, a lady comes in and she pours perfume all over Christ and the disciples start grumbling over the cost of the perfume, right? They're arguing amongst themselves about how expensive a gift this is. We see that just before this event that Jesus tells them that one of them will betray him and they're all looking around. Is it me? Is it me? And they, they get all bent out of shape. But yet when it comes to this moment, there doesn't seem to be any room for levity for them. They knew the importance of the moment. They seem to recognize that Jesus wouldn't change a 1,500-year-old script unless he had grounds to do so, unless it was meaning something hugely significant. So there's another part of, of communion that I have missed for probably most all of my Christian life, and that's the community aspect of communion. And even in the word communion, like it means community, And I've missed it. And I think that this is probably true for others of us, but I'm the one with the microphone, so I get to confess my sin freely, right? Like this is just a part of it that I've missed. The community side of communion is something that I've never even thought about. And and what we have to do is, again, look at this. This is the first Lord's Supper, right? The Passover meal up until this point has always been done with an individual's family. So father, mother, kids, whether they're grown kids or or, or, uh, just little kids in the household, it would have traditionally been done with your family. But yet again, we see Jesus here changing the script of that. And Jesus is now with the disciples. Jesus is now creating a new family. Jesus creates such a community with the disciples that they are now family, And there's something for us in the midst of that as we gather here and as we will take communion here in just a few minutes. Like, I wonder how we see ourselves as we take communion. This group of people didn't just see themselves as like a, a dysfunctional group of people. They saw themselves as family. They saw themselves as a group of people who would do anything for each other. We will actually literally see that in the book of Acts just, just a few um, years down the road from here that a group of people will act like a family and it will change the the history of the world. Back to this. Jesus departs from the script and he makes uh, the disciples a sort of family. Through God's grace now, we can have a relationship with him as well as the body of Christ, meaning the church, meaning believers across the globe, but even more specifically here in this room. When we take communion together, we are, we are being a family together. We are being a community together. We are saying we are joined. We are united. We are now family in this act. And that should be deeply significant for us because the truth is that, that a lot of people just don't function that way. A lot of churches don't function that way as a family, as a group of people who uh, are set aside or who are other. And, you know, this, this is a time for us to renew relationships with Christian brothers and sisters. A time for us to renew relationships with Christian brothers and sisters. Because there are a few things which will harm a church more than division among God's people. And Jesus actually has something to say about this. Jesus himself said in Matthew five twenty three and 24, he said, So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Man, it seems like there's something in that, that Jesus expects us that in worship, that we're examining our relationships with other people and we're making them right if needs be. Paul would later say to the Corinthian church over in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, 29, referring to uh, the Lord's Supper, he said, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. He's talking about the body of Christ. He's talking about the body, the church, the body of believers there in that passage of scripture. And uh, as I was going through that, like I just had to sit in that for a minute. Like think about this. When was the last time that you saw someone as we were about to take communion, take a break and get up from their seat and go to a brother or sister in Christ and make the relationship right? Like walk across an aisle and say, I've sinned against you and I want to make this right. Or you've sinned against me, and we should make this relationship right. Like how humbling a thing for you and I to see. To see a grown man, a grown woman, a a child get up from where they are and say, things aren't right between us, and, and there shouldn't be this type of division in our family. Like we need to make this right. I think for all of us, we have a desire for that to take place. Maybe we've heard story of that taking place somewhere before. Maybe we, we want that to happen. And, but I think most often what happens is, is, is we kind of snap ourselves back into reality. Like we think, yeah, I should do that. I should, I really need to do that. But then all of a sudden, like reality kicks in and we're like, no, 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 no. Like she, she probably doesn't even know. He probably doesn't even know. Like, this isn't the time. This isn't the place. Like, it's not that big a deal. Like, no, like, let's just not. Let me pause us in that. Let me caution us in that again. Like, the truth is that this is a big deal. And now is the time. Think about in your family relationship. If your brother made you mad or your sister made you mad, wouldn't you tell them? Like, heck yeah, you'd tell them right? Like, they're your blood. They're your family. Like, when my sisters make me mad and I have three of them, I'll tell them. Like, hey, you're being a jerk. Like, stop trying to be my mom. Like, we go to them. They're our family, right? We can do that with family. We, as we gather here together as believers, we're a family. And I want to encourage us to make the effort. I'm not saying you need to make a spectacle out of it. In fact, you shouldn't make a spectacle out of it. There, it shouldn't be, uh, let's just leave it at that. It, it shouldn't be a, a spectacle, but I will say it's worth it. And it honors the gift. It honors what Christ has done and is doing for us. So let me get, begin to wrap this up for us this morning. Okay? The Lord's Supper, it's a gift to us. It's a gift of grace. It's a gift of fellowship with the Father. It's a gift that forges community between believers. It's a gift. It's a gift that directs the script of our life toward the script of Christ. It's a gift that realigns us with the Father. Rather than aligning ourselves with, a, with our own script or a script of self or a script of tradition, we realign ourselves with the script of Christ. In the Lord's Supper, Christ is present with us in the midst of this. Do the bread and the wine, do they really become Christ during the observance? No, we don't believe that. However, we also believe that the bread and the wine are more than just symbols. So are we, are we eating the flesh of Christ? Are we drinking the blood of Christ? No, but, are we, but we are doing so much more than simply just observing symbols. Christ is with us, meaning Christ is not absent from the meal. Christ becomes present with us. John Calvin said it this way. He said, the supper is a gift. It does not merely remind us of a gift. The supper is a gift. It does not merely remind us of a gift. Tim Keller said, it would be foolish to separate Christ from the meal as well as to say Christ is the meal. It would be foolish to separate Christ from the meal as well as to say Christ is the meal. Christ is present with us as we eat, and that should be encouraging to us. Christ is not distant. Christ is not far from us. Christ is not somewhere other. He has not removed himself from us. He is actively with us, doing life with us, recommitting uh, as we recommit ourselves to the covenant, he is he's with us. And as we participate in the Lord's Supper this morning, it's our desire that you place your faith in Christ's sacrifice for you. That you hear how his body has been broken. You hear how his blood has been shed for you. And somehow, in some way, that that awakens something in your heart this morning. That Jesus has the ability to rewrite the script of your life. You may have been writing the script of your life now for years. On your own. Going the path that you want to go. Doing the things that you want to do. And, and, and now you're down a path, maybe for some of you, that you can't see a way out of. It's a path full of pain. Maybe a path full of regret. A path that you've just been walking on for so long that to turn back now would just be, man, it, it might almost be suicide. But we see that in the midst of that, Christ offers us a new script. We see that Christ isn't held back by the script that you've written. We see that Christ isn't held back by your tradition. Christ isn't held back by the plans that you have made. Christ steps in in the midst of that, and he pays the price for all the pain, for all the regret, regret, all the missteps, all the brokenness, and he's already done the work to make it possible for your script to be rewritten. He's already done all the work possible for your script to be rewritten. Jesus has said uh, in this passage, he says, this is my body, this is my blood, and then he adds, of the covenant which is poured out for many. Some manuscripts of scripture even add the word new there. So let me clear that up a little bit. The covenant between God and man has not changed. However, the way in which the covenant is fulfilled has changed. Jesus' death on the cross seals the covenant between God and us. The covenant up until this point has, been, has involved the forgiveness of sins through the blood of an animal sacrifice. But now at this point we see that this, this covenant between God and man is going to be fulfilled by the shed blood of Christ. Instead of a lamb on the altar, a spotless, spotless lamb on the altar, it's now Christ on the altar. It's God's spotless lamb, God's spotless son. And Jesus is the sacrifice that would forgive sins once and for all. No more work, no more striving, no more dead lambs, no more smearing of blood. The work's done. It's finished. And for you and I, that should be a weight off of our shoulders. We can come to God through Jesus in full confidence that God will hear us and save us from our sins. For those that have not received Christ by faith this morning, this this table, this Lord's table, remains foreign. But for those of us that have placed our faith in the good news of the gospel, the table will be open. We ask here at Sacred City that you be a baptized believer uh, before you take communion. Not so that we can put walls up around the table or, as someone said, a, a fence around the table. But we want you to take uh, part of the Lord's Supper as, uh, in a worthy manner. You see, your first step towards this table first is you placing your faith in the shed blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then, Baptism. Entrance into the family. As, as Ben uh, talked about during our announcement time, we have baptism coming up on February 7th, and we'd love for you to participate in baptism, not just so that you can participate in the Lord's Supper, but so that you can participate in all the blessings that Christ has for you in your life. You can find out more about uh, baptism and, and what our stance is on baptism out at the hospitality area afterwards, or on our website, or you can go to the city. There's some great links up there. But those are some of the things that we ask that first, you be a believer and you be baptized. And then this table is open to you. After the disciples received the meal, verse 26 tells us that they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now this is one last change in the script for you and I. Traditionally, the the Jews, the Israelites, they would have stayed in their home all night long as a family. But we see Jesus here exit the house and go out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus is saying something significant here. He's saying you no longer have to fear You no longer have to be worried. Your sins are gone. Your sins are, are going to be taken away. We don't have to huddle and hide anymore. It says that they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. They would have sung a portion of the Psalms known as the Hillel, which covers about Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. Check this out. In which the Jews were praising God and looking forward to his rescue. As we sing today, After we take the Lord's Supper, we sing as those who have been rescued. We're no longer looking forward to his rescue. We're singing as those who have been rescued. And now we look forward to Christ's return in which he will dine with us as his bride. Let me pray over us this morning. Father, this morning as we uh, have talked about a very weighty subject, a very weighty portion of Scripture, I pray that that First and foremost, Father, that this has made sense. I pray that you uh, will help these words to be digested by our minds and by our hearts, and Father, that there would be a softening of our hearts. Father, they would hear and we would hear that your body has been broken, your blood has been shed, and through a simple act of communion, we're not only remembering what you've done, we are actively participating in it. We're welcoming you in. We're renewing our covenant with you. We're remembering the sins that you have paid the price for. We're repenting of them and we're renewing our faith in you this morning, Father. God, I pray that as we're here this morning that we would take this to heart. Father, for those of us that maybe have taken communion in an unworthy manner, we have not confessed our sin, we have not um, made things right with a brother or sister, Father, would you bring conviction to our heart this morning? Would you pierce us to the depths of us? Help us to be man and woman enough to walk across an aisle and make something right with a brother or sister. Father, how honoring it would be to the gift if that was the desire of our heart. Father, today, as we take communion, those who heart, whose hearts are humbled before you, God, would you rejuvenate us? Would you bring a joyfulness to us again that we get to participate in you? Thank you for not being far from us, for not being distant from us, but for actively pursuing us. Father, this morning as we take communion, we welcome you here in it, and we pray that you would do a mighty work. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.